Hello again and welcome as we continue our journey through the Ten Commandments, God's recipe for a wonderful life. Uh, we'll be focusing tonight on the, the Eighth Commandment. Let's begin with our opening prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, are you ready for this? You got these down? <laughs> Here we go. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. Yeah, very good. That was good and strong. Number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number three, remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Number four, honor your father and mother. Number five, you shall not kill. Number six, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven, you shall not steal. Number eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's spouse, wife, or husband. Number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. All right, you're getting stronger and stronger with those. And hopefully you're, you're recognizing in your life how these come into play on, on a very regular basis, positively, hopefully not so much negatively. And if you do see it in a negative way that you are making some changes there. So you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Basically, don't lie. <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty easy to understand just at face value, but we'll see that like many of the other commandments, this commandment is doing much more than telling us not to lie, it's protecting something that is holy and sacred. Just like the commandment, you shall not kill, is protecting life, and you shall not commit adultery, is protecting the sacredness of our body. This commandment is protecting something that's holy and sacred. Truth. We'll see how holy and sacred truth is here as we explore into this. Now, there was a couple and they had 12 children and they were relocating to a new town. And they decided because they didn't know what this town was like and where their kids were gonna be involved in things, that they would just rent a house for a while. And after a year or so, they would then decide where they would buy a house. The problem was is they went to rent these houses and people found out they had 12 kids. <laughs> and they thought, these 12 kids are just gonna wreak havoc on our on our house here and they, they they would back away well it got to where they really needed a house and uh so the, the husband uh told the wife he said i'm meeting with the the real estate agent tomorrow afternoon what i want you to do is i want you to take 11 of our children and go to the cemetery and just explore the cemetery with the kids there and and i'll i'll take joey along with me with the, the real estate agent uh there and so um the next afternoon, 
he takes Joey with him and meets up with the real estate agent and, and uh, introduces Joey to her. And uh, she says, oh, it's nice to meet you, Joey. And to, to his father, he says, how many children do you have? And he said, 12. And she said, well, where are the rest of them? <laughs> well, with a very sad look on his face, he says, they're at the cemetery with their mother. So, did this man say what was the truth? He did. He said what was the truth. They were in the cemetery with the mother. But did he speak the truth? Not so much. Maybe a half-truth there. He didn't tell the whole story. So we need to understand what truth is. And we need to ask the question, does truth exist? Because some people say there is no real truth, and it doesn't really exist. It's all just what we, what we decide that it is. And if it does exist, we need to look at, well, where does it come from? And then we need to also be thinking, well, if truth is real, why is it important that it's real? So we're going to look at all of these, and we're going to answer these questions, many of them in this, this first slide. We look at, where does truth come from? Well, we go back to, to creation, which we've done in many of these commandments, going back to, to the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And why do we go back here to find the answer to this question? Because it's in the very existence of things being created that the truth was created by our Creator. And we see this in the Catechism, which tells us by the very nature of creation, material being is endowed with its own stability, truth, and excellence, its own order, and its own laws. Right in the very creation of something, God created the truth. The truth is, if I hold this clicker up and I let go of it, we know exactly what's going to happen. God created the natural law of gravity, and the truth is, with the natural laws that are written on our hearts, they're just as automatic and they're going to work 100% of the time and they have just as much truth as the physical laws that we see. So if I lie to my wife or to my children, are there going to be natural consequences of that lie? It's always in play. And whether somebody finds out that I lie or not, there's still natural consequences that are going to happen. And so in the very nature of creation, truth is created. A sparrow, the truth is a sparrow flies. It's very easy to see. So we look back at creation and see that God established truth at the dawn of time with everything that he created. To reinforce that truth is created in nature, Jesus assures us this. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, does Jesus ever lie to us? So if he says, I am the truth, can't we go to the bank on that? He is the truth. Now, why is truth important? Well, if I become a habitual liar, what's that going to do to my relationships? How am I going to have a good relationship? 
And isn't that what we all look for is good relationships with family and friends and with, with God? So is truth important just from that level? We'll see as we go on how much more important it becomes. <clears throat> truth is not only important, but it's holy and it's sacred. And we know that it's holy and sacred. First off, we go back to that scripture passage we just read where Jesus says he is the truth. And is there anything more holy and sacred than Jesus himself? Not at all. But we can see even further when we go to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. And before he's going to be carried off and crucified and tortured, he's praying to his heavenly Father. And he's not praying about himself and the torture that he's going to be going through. He's praying for you and for me and that we will embrace and know and live in truth. And this was his prayer to his heavenly Father. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. I consecrate myself for them so that they also may be consecrated in truth. Where is that word consecrated used unless it's being brought into something that's holy and sacred? And for Jesus to be consecrating us in his truth in the moments before he's carried off and crucified, how important is truth? How holy and sacred is truth? This commandment is not just about lying, but it's protecting what is holy and sacred. What a great commandment, as they all are, when we start to look past just the simple words there. We see that this truth is important within our relationships and, and how we as a family, we as a society, and us as a world, we, we depend upon the truth. St. Thomas Aquinas, he explains this to us very clearly. He says, men could not live with one another if there were not mutual confidence that they were being truthful to one another. Therefore, as a matter of honor, one man owes it to another to manifest the truth. So for us to exist as family and as society, we need to be able to trust the other and that that truth will be manifested in our words and our actions. So this is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed this prayer. He knew how important truth is for us to exist together. Unfortunately, what some people say is the truth is actually lies and what is lies is now becoming the truth. Things have been turned upside down and turned on its head. And we see this all throughout our culture. We see that what is wrong and harmful is now considered enlightened and healthy. We're getting it all backwards. We see that lying is encouraged to achieve success in life. And we're seeing that confusion and deceit well, they're just strategies to accomplish an agenda. Things are getting turned around and confused. And we, we look to see 
we're, we're looking to try and find out what the truth, but the problem is we're looking in the wrong places. We're looking for truth in the social media, in the talk radio shows, the fake news and the false advertising, the gossiping that we're hearing. Are we looking in the wrong places for truth? And if truth ever did show up in these, these medias, would we ever recognize it amidst all the garbage? You see how truth is so important and we see what's happening in society and in culture and within families because we're looking for truth in the wrong places. Truth is incredibly important and it's sacred and it's holy. Think about the chaos and the confusion and the division. You have family members at odds with each other because they bought into the lies that are being promoted as truth in our modern way of thinking. Not just family members, but societies breaking down. And we see it in the world. And when this chaos happens and you have different countries pursuing truths in the wrong way, one of the things that leads to conflict between the countries and war. So we've talked enough about truth for a while. We've got a better understanding of it. So what's the lie? We need to understand it a little bit better too. And the catechism helps us out here with a couple definitions. First, it gives us this definition. A lie consists in speaking of falsehood with the intention of deceiving. If we think back to the man who said, well, my 11 children are with their mother in the cemetery. Uh, was he speaking the truth or was he being deceitful? Yeah, he was being deceitful there. And so this definition helps us to understand that that would be considered a lie. But there's some problems with this definition because it only says that we can lie by speaking, which we'll see here in a moment that there's other ways that we can lie. And it also doesn't take into consideration those times when telling a lie is maybe protecting something that is very, very important. For example, the Polish family during World War II, who's asked by the Nazi soldiers, are you hiding any Jews in your home? Should they deceive the Nazis or should they tell the truth? This, commandment, this definition here says that they shouldn't deceive. And so we gotta look further and the catechism gives us a little bit more explanation to understand this. In the next paragraph in the catechism in 2483, it says to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead into air someone who has the right to know the truth. So here it's not just speaking, but in the, our actions we can lie. For example, if, if I'm trying to win a contract with a, a client and I know that they need to have this work done within one month and I know that it's gonna take two months. Well, I may not speak that, uh, I, may, I may not speak in a way that's deceiving to the client, but my actions might lead them to believe that I can do it, I could just nod my head when they say, this needs to be done in a month. I can just nod my head. So I didn't speak anything. So this 
definition here helps to know that it, our actions can be deceitful. And this here also helps us to understand how to respond to those Nazi soldiers that are coming to the, to the door of the Polish family. They can be thinking, you know, they don't have the right to know because they're just doing this to, to harm these Jews, these wonderful people. St. Augustine helps us out here a little bit, but also gives us a little bit of maybe a conundrum because St. Augustine says we got to be careful of opening that door of rationalization and emotions in the picture. St. Augustine says it's best to never lie, regardless of the situation. We think, wow, that's pretty hard, that's pretty rough, but he's got some logic. He says lying destroys our soul. So even if we think a lie is harmless, it harms our soul. Beware of lying. Be cautious in telling white lies. Do we prefer pleasing people over telling the truth? So this goes a little bit deeper. And he's, he's recognizing here that it's not just about our physical being, but it's about our souls. This is reinforced when we go to Matthew chapter 10 where it says, and do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can des destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So he's looking beyond our life here on earth. He's looking beyond the physical suffering that we might endure. And he's saying, we've got eternity to look out for. We've got our souls to prepare. And if we do lie, even to protect somebody else, we're putting our souls in jeopardy. So what's more important? It's still a big conundrum here, when we should and should not maybe lie. It's a conundrum that's very hard to difficult and difficult to figure out. <clears throat> but I think pursuing what is true will help us along the way, truly looking for what is true. This question of whether to lie or not is a question that will be debated among the theologians from now until the end of time, but hopefully this gives you a little bit more to go on so that you can assess situations a little more clearly and apply some of these definitions and ways of thinking when it comes time to decide how you're going to respond in a situation. Now we've seen this cycle of confusion a few times in some of the other presentations. And I want to bring it out here because it's, it's very pertinent. So real quickly, this cycle of confusion starts when we listen to the worldly gods, the false gods. And these false gods create confusion. And this confusion causes us to make decisions that are bad and unhealthy for us and bad for our relationships. And it threatens those relationships. And because it's threatened these relationships, we're going, well, I made a bad decision and it's going to cause my, my wife or my kids or my boss or my friend to be disappointed in me. And I don't want that. So maybe I'll just spin a lie. They'll never know. Well, we spin that lie. And it's kind of like this little seed from the dandelion taking off. And that, that seed from the dandelion is going to live a life 
of its own, just like a lie starts to live a life of its own. And what happens is now we have to protect that lie. And in doing so, we become a slave to it. It owns us and now we're enslaved by that lie. And it blows off into the wind. We don't necessarily know where it's going to go. And so in order to protect the truth of that lie, what do we do? We spin another lie and another lie so that the person in that relationship that we're trying to protect doesn't get damaged. But at some point, (laughs) the lies tend to come out. And so these seeds of the dandelions, just like the lies, start to take on another life, their own life. And there's more and more of them. And we become not just slaves of our lives, but we become prisoners to them. And the consequences that is going to happen when these lies come out. And as we become a prisoner of these lies and we have the mess to clean up, it's kind of like those dandelion seeds. They take off and they get out of control. And within a short period of time, we've got this field of dandelions that's going to take years and years to get out of our lawns. These lies take on a life of their own, and we become a prisoner to them. And now we have to endure the consequences, which can take years to work through. You see how the birth of a lie starts when we listen to the worldly wisdom? Why it's so important to put the first commandment first. It's the foundation for all of these other commandments. And when we listen to God and his truth, we're not going to get caught up in these lies. We're not going to become a slave and a prisoner to them. Speaking the truth and living the truth is not easy. But when we get away from the truth, it becomes even harder. One of the things that runs around masquerading as the truth is moral relativism. Pretending that it is the truth, or maybe there isn't any truth at all. We can all just make it up as we go. We need to start to recognize moral relativism. We need to understand it. We need to call it out for what it is. It redefines the truth of God. It redefines it by making it personal. So the standards of relativism is what I decide. It's personal for each individual, and we can all make it up, and we can change it as it goes to fit our needs. And once we've redefined truth, that God doesn't create truth, who's the authority to say that we're not wrong? This moral relativism is very dangerous. It's very destructive. Moral relativism reduces morality to my feelings. My feelings might be, well, I like to have sex, and so I'm going to have sex with anybody whenever and wherever I want, and who's to say that that's not a good thing to do? It's my truth. It's good, and that makes me feel good. So who are you to tell me otherwise? It's all about feelings. And if I feel that maybe I'm not a man, I'm a woman, or anything else, Who's to say that I'm wrong? It's what I feel like today. So moral relativism reduces 
morality to how we feel. Moral relativism demonstrates weakness. Because somebody who embraces moral relativism isn't strong enough to pursue the real truth, isn't strong enough to live the real truth, at least make a good, earnest attempt to live the real truth. And they're not strong enough and they're not loving enough to tell their loved ones what is true, but let them just continue on their, their path of being confused and misled. Which brings to the next point that someone who has embraced moral relativism, they love themselves more than they love someone else. They're not willing to tell the other person who's errant in their ways and confused what is the truth. Moral relativism results in chaos and confusion because now you have conflicting truths that bash against each other. Are we seeing much of that going on in our world today? A lot of disharmony, a lot of discord because people are making up their own truths. And moral relativism, it kills us spiritually. It blinds us to the truth of God. It blinds us to the God who loves us. We become our own God. And it kills us physically. For the person who wants to go out and have promiscuous sex, they eventually have a decision to make about whether they should abort their baby as a result of that. Moral relativism spiritually and physically kills. Incredibly dangerous thing. We need to learn how to recognize and identify moral relativism. We can hear it if we listen in people's explanations. And we can hear it with usually two words that are either tacked on to the beginning or the end of a sentence. And those two words are either for me or to me. So you might hear somebody say, for me, I wouldn't choose abortion, but I'm not gonna tell you that you can't. Or they might say, for me to get ahead, I can do whatever it takes. These two simple little words that are tacked on at the beginning or the end. You might hear them say it this way, for you, or to you, it might be right to get married. For you, it might be right to get married. For me, it's not my thing. Moral relativism in that language. And start to listen for it there. Another one is for them or to them. Two other words that come into our language that are red flags for moral relativism are diversity and tolerance. Diversity training. Well, it sounds really good. And on the surface, it is. We should embrace all people of all nationalities. We should embrace this, but they spin it and they take it to mean many more things that we need to tolerate in our lives. I need to now tolerate calling this person who I've known to be a man for all of my life. Now I need to refer to him as her, it, Zim, zoo, zah, I don't know what the words are. And we're supposed to tolerate this. Be careful of these words. Be listening for these words. Because they are ways of identifying moral relativism. And once we identify them, we can then call them out. And not call them out in a negative, bad way, and in a hateful way. 
but in a loving way to sit down and, and explain to this person who has bought in to this moral relativism and explain to them where maybe they're a little confused and they've gone off the path and they've, they've drank in the Kool-Aid. Another thing that moral relativism does is it says, who are you to judge me? They use this, this statement, this question, who are you to judge me, all-encompassing of all types of judging. Now, we shouldn't judge another person in terms of whether what they're doing is sinful, and we shouldn't judge them as being bad, but we should judge their actions. We should judge what they're doing as being either good or bad in their actions. If somebody is introducing their six-year-old to drugs and alcohol, should we stand on the sidelines and watch this happen? If somebody's taking their six-year-old to get a sex change operation, should we stand on the sidelines and watch this happen? I think we'll be held accountable. We have a responsibility to judge. And God gave us an intellect to judge. And we should be knowing the truth so that we can apply the truth in these situations and go, no, this just, my reason and my logic that God gave me makes it very clear that these things are bad for you. And out of love, we need to explain this and to try and bring that confusion back to where people understand what, what is truthful. So let's break into our group discussion here. We've got four questions there in the book. Take the first two. And the first two, make sure you respect each other's silence. Give everybody time to reflect on this in their own lives before discussing it. The second question here is how has the world denied and become blind to the truth? And what problem is this causing? So go ahead and break into your discussions. Make your discussions personal and respect each other's confidentiality.